Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This was supposed to be the hot vac summer. No, wait, the hot vax autumn, when eating out was all the rage again. Extra unemployment benefits, after all, ran out in early September. Coming out of lockdowns, people have scads of money to spend, we were told. Starved for human interaction at eateries. And yet, you'd be hard-pressed to find a restaurant without a help-wanted sign up right now. More and more are curtailing hours and even shutting down outright. What gives and what will have to give to get the U.S. back to some semblance of restaurant normalcy? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. We're going to talk to a veteran restaurant owner and an HR firm employee who's been on top of the restaurant industry's ongoing staffing crisis. But first, a dispatch from Taylor Antonelli, owner of Superstars Pizza in Richmond, Virginia. He recently took to Instagram to announce he had to close for a day to focus on, quote, combating staffing shortages while maintaining a work-life balance for our small staff. This after more than a year of trying to keep it all together through curbside-only service. His struggle is very real. Hey, Robin, to answer your question on what it's like for small restaurant owners right now, I just would start with saying that let's just say I never expected 2021 would be harder than 2020. Our staff is about 30% less than what it was this time last year. We've increased wages about 40%, and we're still having a hard time getting people in the door. Um, I couldn't tell you how many times we've scheduled an interview no one shows up, someone reaches out, says they're interested in the open position, radio silent from that point. You know, it's, it's difficult, and I hope there's, you know, brighter days ahead. I was watching Ted Lasso last night, and, you know, his uh, idea of ROM communism um, gave me a little hope that, you know, in the end, things will just work out. So that's what we're hoping for, fingers crossed. We're being as creative as possible, um, seeing what we can do, and hopefully people will start getting back to work and realize that, you know, restaurants provide a sense of enjoyment and, you know, it really gives you a feeling that you're, that you're helping people and making people smile. And to me, that's always important. Take care, buddy. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me downtown at her restaurant, which is celebrating its uh, one-year anniversary in its new space, Jamaica House, is Karina Ives, the nationally renowned Jamaican restaurateur. She was on, what, Guy Fieri's show, some of the best things he's ever had. You have Jamaica House and Karina's between the two. She has 55 to 60 employees. Her initial flagship, Jamaica House, which I said earlier, moved a year ago, has been open since 1994 when she struck out on her own. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, I got to know because everyone on the socials is saying, you know, this was supposed to be the hot vac summer, hot vac fall, reopening. Everybody's raring to go out again, but no one can seem to find staff. What are you seeing in the trenches? That is universal. It's universal for everybody in my industry, all my closest restaurateur friends, um, all the people that I know casually, we're all complaining about the same thing. We we have we can do great volume. We just don't have the people and the support to 
put out a lot of food in a timely manner. We just don't have the help. Why is that? I understand if there was extraordinary unemployment insurance during the worst of the pandemic. And as you told me, you had to shut down for two weeks in March. A lot of the business has gone carry out. We've been rethinking the dining room. But if people need wages and they need tips, they go back to work. So what gives? It has confounded me too. I just don't understand what the gap is. The only thing I can say is whatever happens in the economy on a larger scale happens to us on a small scale. So if people are getting vaccinated and being protected and the virus is not circulating as much, then I think there's a greater chance for us on a, on a small level and in, this, in this kind of industry to prosper. The problem I see is that if people are not protected, the virus is still circulating, there's this fear and there's this anxiety. And I think it just holds us up on a larger scale as a country. And in, the, in our industry, it just hinders us from doing the work we need to do. So what is it when you talk to your wait staff or the kitchen staff and this dreaded idea of coming in on a Tuesday morning and not having enough people to make lunch or enough people to service? I mean, again, go on social media. You can look at our friends at Superstars Pizza, our friends at, you know, some of your RVA Dine neighbors here who are saying, because of a staff shortage, we're going to have to throttle Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You can go to the Panera, which has turned its drive through off for the time being because there's not enough staff for that side of the kitchen. What is it specifically about restaurants and restaurant staff? Sadly, Robin, I got to tell you this. I got to break the news to you. It's not just restaurants. It's the banks. I cannot even go into SunTrust, Naltruist, to get coins, to get change. Just short of a change, too. You, you, you can't even find coins. So this sort of gap in the supply chain is, is not just unique to us. It's everybody. It's where I, in my own restaurant, my chef, I've had to ask, please wash pots for a chef. This is how critical it, it is. Our kitchen manager, the top of the top of the hierarchy in our kitchen, have had to do the most basic of chores because we just don't have the help. You know, where I, as a business owner, have had to don an apron and get on the line and do a shift because this is what it takes. And I know for the, for the, the benefit and the success of my business and for the employees that I do have to maintain them and retain them, I need to pick up a slack. And it's, it's, it's just, it's a lot of, lot of uncertainty and anxiety that I think is almost 100% preventable. How much boils down to the prevailing wage? Like how much have you had to sweeten the pot from say eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve dollars until somebody meets you sustainably and says, Yes, I'm willing to meet you here? Right. And what I've noticed that when the minimum wage was increased to the nine fifty an hour, um, which was long overdue, by the way. I you know, as a business owner, we've never ever held true to that seven fifty an hour um, wage because we understood that for our employee and for their families, Paying anyone seven fifty an hour was just not uh, a sustainable way to live. So we've always, I've always pushed that limit to be the nine fifty. Way back in the day before nine fifty was a thing. So when it got to nine fifty, what that did initially was made those people that were making nine fifty. Now I had to push those wages a little bit higher because to be competitive and to bring in a new new help that we're starting at nine fifty or ten dollars an hour. No, we have to raise those people that were making that wage to begin with. So there's that. And then you add on to the fact that, you know, labor's so short, everybody's competitive. You have these restaurants that are, you know, offering bonuses and health care and retirement plan. And I, I applaud them. I think it's a wonderful thing if you're in the industry and you're making those kinds of dollars that you can say to someone, honestly, that this is what I can do for you and, and sustain it. I know as an as a owner that my resources are limited and my objective is to make sure people have a living wage for as long as possible. It doesn't make sense for me to offer someone a retirement plan, healthcare coverage, when I know I can possibly do that, but it would be very short term and that to me is disingenuous. So I would never do that. So what what we've tried to do is recruit people that are in our atmosphere already. So what we've done uh, recently asked family members to ask other family members because they know our culture, they know me as a person, they know us as a family, and it's, it's an easier way for us to bring people into a fold that we don't 
have to convince that this is a great place to work. Let me ask you, the sign says right at the door at Jamaica House again, we're here in downtown Richmond. Welcome, please wear a mask. I guess you're leaving that enforcement to your staff, your cash register person, your servers, your kitchen. That is a very difficult thing to do. It's not like there's a cop or a bouncer at the door. It is a supremely difficult job to do. And given on given the fact that, you know, what we've had to do recently is recruit such young workers. So a lot of our front of the house staff now are younger teenagers. And I am saying to young teenage girls who barely have their voice yet to be firm, to be courteous, but to be firm and ask our customers to wear their masks because we understand that if our health, our employees are not protected, then we don't have a business. We don't have a business. So it's critical that everybody find their voice and understand that enforcing this rule is not to make a statement. It's to protect our livelihood. And me insisting that they enforce this rule is to protect, protect their health. And our customers understand when they come into our space, they're protected all around. We are thinking about their health, their well-being. Because to me, <laughs> a healthy customer is a great customer. I, you know, a healthy customer can walk into our space or get on the phone and call us and request things and ask us to do things. You know, it's one that is sick or on a ventilator cannot speak. So my job as a, and it could be a little bit selfish and capitalist, but my job as a business owner is to make sure everybody in my atmosphere is protected. You talk about the atmosphere. People come in here and eat and they have to take off their masks. And it's something I never understood about the restaurant business. You couldn't force the mask at the door, but ultimately you have to take it off shortly after to eat your oxtail, your jerk chicken, your ting, your cocoa bread. And is that the preeminent concern among staff that even if I'm masked all day, I need to be in an environment where there could be unvaccinated people projecting particles into the air. Exactly why we need everyone to be vaccinated. So when I when I talk about this and I and I ask people about it's really reinforcing the fact that in order to move beyond this stage, beyond this area of of, of grayness of not knowing and trying to figure out, is is to say to people. Listen, if you're vaccinated, we can take, we can all take our mask off, right? We can get beyond this and people can come out and eat like normal, in a normal way. You don't have to wear the mask and you don't have to do this kind of sliding scale of when do I wear the mask? Do I wear the mask when I go to the bathroom? Do I wear the mask when I talk to the server? Do I, do I just wear the mask just in the front door and take it off? We can get beyond all of that silliness if we just get vaccinated. If we're not vaccinated, then we get into this whole sliding scale of trying to figure out what to do, when to do, and how to do it. It is absolutely maddening. Um, we do ask, you know, here we have enough space where we can we can socially distance people, and that's critical because I think for, for beyond the mask, and I think just having people have room around them is critical. We have fans going. We have the door open at all times, even when it's 100 degrees outside, because we, we understand that air replacement is critical. We have to figure out the ways to mitigate this virus, and doing those things is the best we can do. Uh, we, we're trying to meet our customers halfway because obviously people want to get back to their lives. They want to feel normal. They want to come out and have lunch with someone they haven't seen in over a year. They want to reconnect with friends and family, and we are, we've created this beautiful space for them to do that, and it's, it's, it's this disheartening and a little frustrating that we cannot get back to where where we were a year and a half ago, two years ago. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Karina Ives. She is the owner of Jamaica House in downtown Richmond. That's where we are. She also owns Karina's on the south side of Richmond. And all, she has a staff of about, what, 60 people across both restaurants. I got to ask you, so you started off, you struck out on your own in the early 90s when you had the old Jamaica House. And you were looking for the longest time for a new space, which you found here in the middle of what they call the Arts District of, of Richmond, I guess. You had to follow through on opening up in the throes of the pandemic in 2020. What the heck was that like? It was <laughs> it was a little frightening, I got to tell you. Even when 25 years of business and a, and a loyal following of customers behind us um, that we built over those 25 years, it was still 
crazy. I, I don't even, under, I don't even know how we got through it, but we did. Thank God. Knock on wood. Having the financial struggle of moving a business, we ended up buying our space here so we could become our own landlord and kind of figure out our own destiny. So beyond having that sort of financial burden and, and worry, no, we had a health epidemic that we had to figure out and how to manage that and make sure our staff not only stayed healthy, but stayed employed. You know, we're talking about a staff of 20. We're talking about people that have, you know, most of our cooks and dishwashers and support staff have been with me 15, 12, 11 years. Um, our chef, Lenworth, he's been with me since the beginning, 26 years. So in moving a business, I'm not just worried about making sure my brand survives. I am trying to make sure that my staff can continue to support their family and stay healthy. So we are just lucky. We're, we're just lucky that we were able to do something that was so tricky and have it roll out exactly how we planned it. How did you enforce vaccination, if at all? Well, you know, it's not necessarily, I, I don't look at it as, as, a, as a force of vaccination or enforcing vaccination. The way I thought about it from the beginning, and our staff has been this in this from the beginning, where we had to put blockades at our doorway and serve people on sidewalk. We understand what that felt like in the heat of summer, in the dead of winter. We understood how awkward and how challenging that was, right? We, we worked through a pandemic when 2,000 people per day were dying or, and more. We, we saw infection rates of in the multiple thousands of people every day. So we worked through all of that, right? So when it came time for us to be vaccinated, when we got the, the word from BDH that our group was next, it was not a question. Our staff, I knew, we knew, our entire family of staff knew in order for us to work safely, in order for us to work efficiently, we had to be protected. And that is what this vaccination does. It protects us. You know, here in the city of Richmond, my customer, my core customers, which is the black community, we've been hit harder than any other community anywhere else. And so to see my customers dying at greater numbers than any other community, it's heartbreaking. It breaks my heart that we have now, for, for whatever reason, either by through exposure because we don't have a job that we can work from home or we live in tighter housing situations with multi-generations of family members. For those reasons, and whatever hesitancy there is, these things have combined to put us at greater risk. And so I need to let my community know, for all of our sake, we have to get protected. We have to be able to survive to figure out the rest of our struggles. You know, we, we can't just stop here. Karina Ives, what about the more mundane but still, nevertheless, really frustrating supply chain struggles? I mean, you have peculiar things that you have to procure from scotch bonnet peppers to the oxtail. I see that you invested in an oxtail saw in the back because everybody orders that. Everybody, I, I, I mean, there, there was a chicken wing shortage last year. There was a chicken breast shortage last year. The pandemic particularly hit the meatpacking industry. How has that visited you? Oh, my goodness. That has just wreaked havoc. It has just created the worst set of circumstances for us because we're selling a product that, for all intents and purposes, probably should be thrown away. You know, a lot of people would think of it as a tail of a cow. Why eat that? You probably should discard that. But this is what we as community find as comfort food. This is my comfort food. This is the food that I love. And price of oxtails, my price of oxtails, essentially tripled. Tripled. And for the longest time. Your price of oxtails. Tripled. Tripled. I, I called my meat, my meat supplier and I said, you know, what should I do? I've been holding off on raising prices because I understand how the families that I serve, how these things impact them. You know, we, we're not talking about people with unlimited resources. And and for us to be successful, we need those same families to be out there two times a week, three times a week, because that is the volume that we that we need in order to sustain profitability, right? So when prices like that go go that high, it is frightening. And it's not just meat prices, it's everything else. It's it's vegetables. Peppers, onions, tomatoes, it's, it's beans. So you, you name the product, 
I mean, is this also lack of availability from the distributor, or would they tell you? I mean, do you do you get hit up every week and being told we can't get enough coconut milk at scale? Like, how how does this work? It's 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 whatever. However, the virus is circulating in any particular country or community. This is what happens. You know, if you think about those people, all the people. You know, I mentioned SunTrust Bank earlier. That's a financial institution, and for all intents and purposes, you're thinking virus might not have that big big of an impact on on banking because people working behind computers and they're at home or they're in some isolated office where you know you can social this. No, you you we have to interface with people on the ground. So your local banker, where you go in and you're sit, sitting across a counter from you, that's someone that you're interacting face to face. The virus in, is infecting those people. They have to isolate. They have to quarantine at home. It impacts my business because now the bank closes. I cannot go into the bank to do my transaction. I can't get a roll of quarters because it's only drive-through services. So it's, it's those sorts of situations. Um, here, for us, we're using a lot of product that comes directly from Jamaica. From Jamaica? Yes. And currently, I don't know if you noticed this, but last a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, um, CDC recommended that no travel to Jamaica. Because again, because of misinformation and lack of access to the vaccine, we ha- we now have an explosion of coronavirus cases and deaths on the island. So what does that do? It impacts production there. It chokes up the supply coming in. You know, we're still booming at the same at the same volume, and we're calling for the all these items. And they're like, well, wait a second. You know, we had to shut down production for a month or two weeks because we've had to isolate, we've had to quarantine, or we just don't have people because, unfortunately, that lead guy that knew how to do whatever, he's now gone. These are the things that impacts everybody. And I and I and I stress to people, if you're at home and all your family's healthy and everybody is doing fine and you don't have to worry about coronavirus on that personal level, I want you to think about all the things you enjoy, where they come from, and how that virus impacts that supply to your door. Because eventually it might not do it immediately, but eventually it will. And I just want people to understand it's, it, it's, it's important for all of us on a community level, on a national level, on a global level to get behind the one simple goal of getting people protected, getting people safe so that we can go back to work. Karina, what's your relationship become with the likes of Grubhub and Uber Eats and DoorDash? I don't, I don't want to sound mercenary, but they've had a really good pandemic because they've become indispensable businesses with people that don't want to go inside dining rooms. Do you do you work with these guys? Are you able to preserve margins and still engage the the food delivery companies? We, you know, you know, Robin, <laughs> I've gone back and forth with a lot of people. Grubhub, Uber Eats, you name it. We've 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 gone back and forth with them, trying to figure out a happy medium. Unfortunately for us, we've never been able to get to that point. And you you mentioned mercenary earlier, and I I almost feel. That's that's exactly how I kind of feel about it. I, I feel like for smaller business, businesses that are smaller than mine and the margins they have to give up in order to have a relationship with one of these delivery delivery apps, it's it's sad. It's sad. And you know, they they made the argument is that the argument is that, well, you know, we can create the volume for you to make up the percentages. That is not necessarily true all the time. And a lot of people are passing a lot of the costs onto their customers, which may not be a problem now, but down the road, how much of that is sustainable? You know, we've, we've seen where unemployment benefits have expired. The rent moratorium is, is gone. Um, so all of these things are coming to roost. People will now have to live on what they make. And a meal that could, should cost maybe 10 or 12 bucks goes to $18, $20, that to me is just unsustainable. And I, 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 I don't... Then the, cos- the cosmic question is this hard-won dining room, which you have a lot more space than you used to at the, you know, the old tiny Jamaica house, which was beloved, but you'd always see a line out the door in a huge carryout business because the dining room wasn't all that big. Uh, this was opposite the, the, the basketball arena at Virginia Commonwealth University. Now that you have this huge dining room, and I hear Chipotle and other public companies talking about it, is it an albatross? Is it square footage that you really don't need? I don't know where these people get this idea that having a space for people to gather 
and have a community is a bad thing. I, I, I don't understand what is going on. And, and I, I know a lot of people are reacting to the pandemic, right? They're, they're reacting to a new reality. My hope, <laughs> and I hope everyone in the entire world in the city of Richmond or wherever, everywhere, feel the same as I do, that this too shall pass. And what's going to happen beyond 2021 or 2022 or beyond COVID when we're, we're a step away from this and, you know, we don't have a raging virus? What, what are we going to do? We're going to sit in our, all in our dining rooms or in our, in our living rooms and eat out of takeout containers all the time? I don't, I don't think so. I, I created a space to have community, for people to meet up, see each other, meet new people. How about that idea? What about coming out of your house, you know, you know, wherever it is that you're sheltering, getting away from that and finding new people, having new conversation, hearing some perspective and some ideas that you probably never considered before. This is what I think my dining room represents. It's for now we're socially distanced, but it's for someone to reach over and say, by the way, that dish looks really good. I've never seen that before. This is what I, 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 I want to do. I want to expose people, not only to their own selves and community. But to all kinds of ideas, and I and I don't think we can do that if all we're doing is shoveling food in a bag and sending people on their way and say, "Go home, go somewhere else." Not my problem. Not my problem. It's hospitality. Hmm. There's a there's a meaning behind that word, and I hope that everyone gets to that point where they understand the significance of that. Karina Ives, in closing, I have to ask you, and this gets into a little bit of wonky territory, but I'm going to dedicate an upcoming episode to this. What is your relationship with insurance going forward? I mean, I, I read somewhere that one of the only firms that one of the only entities that availed itself of true pandemic insurance was Wimbledon, and it got a payout, and it just through dumb luck of 20 years of playing premiums, got to collect some element of money from the missed opportunity of not having a full Wimbledon in 2020. Were you ever offered? pandemic business interruption insurance and are you thinking about buying something on the other end of this no i um i've never considered that um i you know i've been sort of optimistic that we can continue to do business maybe not on the same sort of high level of our previous years but still maintain still maintain livelihood for employees and still figure out a way to eke out a profit here and there you know my my whole point of view from from the beginning of this pandemic is to is to, is to figure out how to get to the other side. Does that necessarily mean do I have to make a profit every single day? No, it means that I just have to open the doors. I just have to make sure my employees feel that you know they're protected and they have stability in their employment, and that my customers know that if they need a good hot meal that's made from scratch, not frozen, <laughs> that they can come here and they can get that. And, and be satisfied. And if I, beyond that point, when I get, when we get beyond that point, then I can worry about, you know, making the numbers work and, and figure out how much profitability I should have. Um, I don't know if, if my business is, is the best type of business to have that sort of insurance and if it's even worth, you know, worthwhile. I, I just have to figure out other ways to generate income and make sure that we're staying a little bit ahead of the game. Karina Ives, uh, approaching 30 years now as a, as a nationally renowned Jamaican restaurateur. I mean, I, what, you started in 1992, 93? 94. 94, you were on Food Network, regaled by Guy Fieri as one of the best things he's ever had. Now has 60 people working under her, both at Jamaica House in downtown Richmond, where we are, and at Karina's on the south side. You should know that you are always welcome back on this show. Oh, thank you, Robin. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the broader labor and supply and supply chain malaise in the restaurant industry. What is going on? There's a person I really wanted to talk to about this because in a past life, he was a restaurant owner and entrepreneur, Kevin Wilson, who's now Director of Community Engagement at Dominion Payroll, which does payroll and HR services and various handholding for all sorts of small and medium businesses. How are you? I'm doing great, Robin. It's good to be here. Well, first, you know, we talked to, we had a little dispatch from Taylor Antonelli at Superstars telling us that just people are flaking out left and right on interviews. We spoke with Karina Ives at Jamaica House is how she's trying to keep it together, pay a living 
wage, uh, deal with oxtail prices that are tripling. What are you hearing from all of these restaurant clients that you work with? I mean, quite frankly, it's it's tough out there. Um, you know that 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 that's it with a bow on it. Getting people, you know, everything from soliciting talent, you know, really just getting people to show up for interviews. We're seeing um, some people out there that are offering incentives just for people to come in and fill out the application. Um, you know, hmm. that's not even talking about the folks that are looking at at wage and benefit issues that they've really never had to consider. You know, in the last. 20 years or so. So it's, it's really tough to get talent in the door. And, you know, that's not something that's necessarily new to the industry. You know, speaking from my experience, you know, I, I remember joking with somebody saying that, uh, you know, the, a qualifying candidate just comes in and they, they have a, a pen in their pocket. So, you know, that was, that was the bar sometimes when I was looking for bussers and, and, you know, perhaps line cooks, that sort of thing. But, you know, the last 18 months has really just thrown a huge wrench into, you know, the ability for, you know, restaurants, small retail, you know, a lot of these Main Street businesses to to get folks in the door. Why doesn't this boil down to compensation, Kevin? I mean, after all, if, if you if you break out all of the exogenous things and the various one time, you know, PPP, enhanced unemployment benefits, the lament has been that you're paying people too much to stay on the sidelines. Of course, they can do nothing at home and it beats having to go and dealing with patrons at a restaurant or a store that don't want to mask. But that has expired. September 6th was the last of it. And so you would think that to some degree, people have to go back and refill their coffers and prime the pump again. And yet superstars have to shut down on a Tuesday. You go to a Panera drive through and it'll say the drive through is not operating because of, of labor reasons left and right. Not only do you see the help wanted signs, but owners of restaurants are at such wit's end that they're they're actually shutting down for days on end. You know, I, I think that really what we're seeing is is a series of perfect storms hitting each other. Not to, to wax too large in terms of economics, but, you know, if you look at, at wage stagnation, particularly in the sort of lower echelons, American workers in the retail and the food service sector really haven't seen a raise in the last 50 years. So, you know, there there is that money um, aspect. And I think you get to sort of a a breaking point where you just have people saying, Hey, it's really not worth it to go into this. You know, and I think that I think automation is something that's not being discussed um, perhaps nearly enough, but you know, I, I see the, the articles and the ads for, you know, these robot arms that can come in and, and man a, a fry later. Um, and, you know, they don't take smoke breaks. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, we're seeing, you know, the influence of that perhaps in its very, you know, nascence right now, starting to impact just sort of what does the, the labor situation look like in, in the restaurant sector? And then, you know, frankly, to, to bring a little bit of a like emotion into the, the conversation, if you've spent 18 months being told that you're uh, an essential worker and that you're uh, a hero for coming in and flipping a burger, but you, you know, run the risk of getting sick in an industry that is historically underinsured and to have you know, customers come in and complain about the service to, you know, all, all, all of the things that, that were present prior to the pandemic have just been exacerbated. And I think you're really just seeing a lot of people saying, man, it's not worth it. And, and frankly, if, if Walmart's going to have a starting wage at, at 13 or 15 bucks an hour and Target and Amazon, I think you see in a shift of not to diminish anybody in these positions, but, you know, this mm. largely unskilled work that's, that's going to, going to chase those higher wages. So I'm hearing that this has chronically been undervalued over several decades. If you look at uh, CEO wages, if you look at uh, returns on capital, uh, people in certain wealth brackets, uh, how their income and their wealth has gone up over 20, 25, 30, 40 years versus people who are minimum wage dependent, who uh, would get a job at a Publix or a McDonald's. What I don't understand, Kevin, are these even less than minimum wage. What is the tip adjusted minimum wage? You've worked with with people before. I can't imagine uh, in this situation signing up for say a job that pays half of minimum wage and then having upside in tips. Right. You know, that I mean that's a really classic problem here and when you don't know what your pay is going to be in any given week, you know, you don't know if Thursday night's going to be busy. Um you don't know if a snowstorm's going to come through in December and, and effectively shut down your bar. So that, that uncertainty is a real issue. And so if you have things like, you know, childcare needs, um, I mean, just the, the basic stability that is offered by 
a set schedule and a set wage, that's way more attractive to a lot of people. It's not to say that there isn't a professional class of people who are, you know, both exceedingly good at the service industry and can live that life. But, you know, as a father of two, I can attest to the fact that it's a young man's game. Um, And it's, it's something where, you know, having been in that industry for a long time, my heart goes out to everybody who is just working their butts off, frankly, to make ends meet. And, and right now it's, it's tough out there. Kevin, tell us about your start in the industry. I mean, you work as a waiter or did you work in the kitchen before getting your, I guess, entrepreneurial start in, in 2008, 2009 in the depths of the great recession? Sure. Um, well, I, I have to, to hearken back to, uh, I was uh, 16 years old and I was hired at a restaurant called the, uh, the Big Easy. It was a Cajun style joint, um, you know, with Zydeco music and hurricane glasses everywhere. And I, I was brought on to bus tables. And in my short time there, I think about five, six months before that restaurant actually shut down, I had done everything from being a line cook to a raw bar operator, a waiter and uh, a host. Um, so I jumped in head first, um, so to say, and, and sort of loved the industry. And, um, and it was something that I always sort of came back to. Um, so in, in college, I, uh, I ended up with a job at a Richmond Institution, Sticky Rice. Um, and I, I worked closely. Sticky Rice, the sushi, the sushi joint. Yes. Um, you know, sushi and, and uh, you have to, to give a shout out to the PBR and Tater Tots. Um, an empire yes, built on true. that. Um, but I, I uh, went into business with the owners of, um, of Sticky Rice and opened Sticky to Go Go. We were a, a carry out um, and catering concept. We had a food truck for a number of years. And had I perhaps been a little bit more uh, business savvy at the time, I would have really freaked out at the 07 08 recession. But I was blissfully unaware that uh, as I was just trying to staff up and keep people happy and keep feeding people. But as I, sort of got my chops in the business world. I, I was reviewing, you know, old PL statements and things like that and realized sort of how precarious that industry is. So that was sort of a trial by fire lesson um, in, I don't know, the uncertainty of that market. And I think honestly, it was dumb luck that we stumbled through that recession and had a, had a great, you know, decade long run serving the people of Richmond. So I'd also be remiss if I didn't shout out that it had uh, a, a great time with a really good friend of mine opening a restaurant called The Cellar Door that we operated for Two years, great restaurant, um, bad location, you know, so that that was there. There's the business lesson in that one. Hmm. I got to ask, uh, and we discussed this with Karina and various restaurant people I've talked to have had a tortured, really love hate relationship with the Grubhubs and Uber Eats and DoorDashes of the world, because it's essential right now, especially when people uh, had a brand new relationship with delivery and carry out. And this is something that you could farm out to someone, but in a business whose margins are getting assailed, you know, let's say that, let's say a $10, $12 dish, uh, there's a lot of sticker shock in getting that delivered for $20, $21. And the blame will be placed on the restaurant if the order is not right. It's not going to be placed on the gig worker. Uh, what are you hearing from your clients and your old affiliates in the restaurant community about the, you know, as the dining room remains precarious, uh, the outsourcing of the carryout and delivery business? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, a really interesting tenuous situation right now where you know lots of, of single location restaurants don't have the ability necessarily to scale up a full delivery service but they recognize that it's it's become you know overnight last march it was central immediately central to their business fees that come out of those national players are really difficult for the consumer to swallow um, mm. and i feel that former restaurant owner it was a tightrope of how much of that cost do you pass on to the consumer? As I speak with colleagues, you know, that, that continue to operate in the industry, you know, this frequently comes up that, that the true cost, you know, if we want to pay a living wage, we want to offer, you know, health or, or gosh, the, the unheard of benefit of having PTO in the restaurant industry. If we wanted to incorporate paid, all those- Paid time off, paid, paid time, time off and the other correct. bennies, yeah. You know, all, all of those, if, if we want that provided on the labor side in the restaurant industry, we're, you're looking at, at prices of, you know, say a, a hamburger dish at, at that $25, $30 mark. So it's, it's, it's a squeeze from, from both directions to try and be a good steward of the relationship you have with, with your employee base. Um, but you also have a consumer base that is 
frankly sort of been spoiled for you know multiple decades of mm. of artificially depressed prices on food. Uh, Kevin Wilson of Dominion Payroll, uh, director of community engagement at Dominion Payroll, former restaurateur, uh, still patched in works, holds the hands of many small and medium sized restaurant owners. I have to ask if you game this out, if this desperation continues and you can't get anybody and you see the voluntary uh, wages kind of creep up, go up, you know, break the $12 sound barrier, $13, $14, $15 an hour, $16 an hour. Are we going to come to that reconciliation that this is ultimately with the customer and menu prices? There's been a tremendous diffusion of responsibility. The fact that so much of comp is left to tip, and you mentioned earlier as if there's a particularly snowy December night and it obliterates tips at a restaurant or the bar has to be closed, that immediately hits a person's livelihood. So building stability into it is is the sticker shock of menu prices way too much for anybody to tolerate if the world indeed becomes a $15 to $20 an hour you know, restaurant service industry. You know, I, I don't see a way around it. And un- unfortunately, the sad fact is that I think that we're going to see more closures in, in the near future of restaurants that were perhaps already on a precarious footing and are unable to sort of navigate this, this, the sticker shock and the disruption of, of the present moment. Um, the Darden, you know, food groups of the world, uh, you know, the Olive Gardens and all that will navigate this fine. I, you know, don't want to make less of their struggle, but they, they've got deep pockets and they'll get through this. It's the, the Main Street businesses that are really going to struggle to uh, adjust to calls for higher wages, mandates for higher wages. And, you know, frankly, the with the support structure sort of falling out as far as PVP winding down, it's darker days ahead. And I, I really don't want to be the uh, foreboding <laughs> voice of, of doom here. And if I, if I could just sort of have a call to action, I'd say, you know, if, if there is a uh, a restaurant that you love in your neighborhood, you know, tonight's the night to go do carry out, leave a decent tip. That's, that's sort of my, my clarion call to, uh, to everybody who wants to see that vibrance in their community and not to have everything replaced by something that's been workshopped and work grouped and is sort of sterile, but fine. And, you know, if we want a, a cheesecake factory on every corner, then, you know, that's, that's what the future looks like right now. I hope I'm not messing with any, uh, future sponsors of, of full disclosure by <laughs> <laughs> well no this is this is an important thing too because it I, it gets to a question i had about ghost kitchens we did not discuss this at all but uh, talk about a an area that has been venture backed as we in in kind of blindsiding overnight fashion last year starting in march and april of 2020 shifted to curbside contactless carryout a lot of 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 investors out there and restaurant people realize that this was the time to pool talent and kitchen and overhead and get scale economies of doing it. And so you've seen an explosion in kind of uh, warehouses being retrofitted into kitchens, or you've surely read that yarn about, you know, Chuck E. Cheese when its business model was suddenly dead overnight. It converted into a kind of a ghost kitchen concept under a a, a parallel name or, you know, a place that delivers Italian food. Um, this kind of parallel with the automation that you talk about is is the very obverse of that personality and soulful corner family-owned restaurant. This is the anonymous scale machine that is just trying to recoup margins and economies where they're being taken away by everything from labor costs and the supply of everything from dairy and meat and chicken. You've been to Westwood Diner with me. Faisal Aridi, former guest, has been on. He says, he can't consistently get ham for his omelets from the same source. Uh, it's just so much, and he doesn't believe that this is going to thaw anytime soon. Yeah, the uh, I mean, the the ghost kitchen concept is something that's both um, really I'm very curious about it, but at the same time, you know, just in time for Halloween, there's a spookiness to this idea that you can remove personality um, from from a restaurant and just sort of you know stamp out this. Um, generic whether it's you know italian or thai or or what have you and and it's all based on the machine operating you know at at a certain scale and efficiency it's it's an interesting concept um i think that you know there there may well be a place for it but you know the these generic you know mr mario's pizza or something like like that that just sort of pops up and you're like this i've never even seen one of these things it, it just is delivered in the night and and you've got an adequate pizza in front of you there may well be a future for all of those things, but as somebody who really loves 
that interaction that you have with guests, that ability to bring your own personality um, and creativity to creating great dishes and great experiences for people, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, I, I, I hate to think that there will always be a place for mom and pop restaurants, um, these single operations, um, place, you know, the local watering hole um, where, you, you know, everybody knows your name, that sort of thing. But right now it, it is very much under attack from everything that, that we've described here. You know, there's, there's the labor element of the pie. There's the ability to get consistent ingredients, you know, the whole supply chain um, and, and the rising prices there. And then competing pressures from delivery and these operations that are able to come in and set up shop in a warehouse. And now you're competing with, you know, a billion dollar venture fund that decided mm. that Thai and, and, and pizza were the, the best way to maximize return. So it's, it's, it's tough waters out there. Uh, the restaurant industry, when I think about it, has always been kind of that last American redoubt of, you know, if you don't have, if you have a high school diploma or not, it's the last place where true elbow grease and kind of proving yourself in the kitchen, and like you said earlier, working everything from dishwashing to delivery and everything can give you a path up, ultimately perhaps to entrepreneurship and owning the restaurant and having equity and, and having a true stake in the business, and there's self-determination to it. And I wonder with, uh, you know, right now we're talking about this 10 million job opening dilemma with this economy that's still trying to recover from the great calamity of, of COVID in 2020, what that does to this social compact going forward. Uh, suppose everybody was vaccinated. You know, Karina Ives told us earlier that it's all about the vaccination. It's all about the, the lust for life of going out and, and having a drink in a dining room and being there with people and seeing people and asking your neighbor which dish she ordered. Sure. If, if that doesn't come back, what else are we losing? Gosh, I mean, I think that restaurants um, and, and their analog in the retail sector are really the backbone of our communities. You know, when, when I hear about some Silicon Valley concepts or I hear about operations in the financial sector, I, I need an entire seminar to understand what these companies do. But we can all wrap our heads around feeding people good food. We can all wrap our heads around making you know, a quality product and selling it to your neighbors. It's such a basic economic engine. And it, it makes me nervous to lose the vitality that comes from that. There's, there's a public square element to this where you know, the exchange of ideas, the meeting of strangers. Um, you know, I, I can attest that I met the love of my life because she sat at my sushi bar one night. You know, with without the vitality that's provided by these operations, I, I think we lose a lot, and it, it does make me nervous to to imagine sort of a, a a sterile dining and recreation world that's that's governed by you know ROI and and, and principles of return. And and frankly, you're, a computer's not going to make uh you know delicious marinara. That's just not going to happen. So you know, there, there's a lot to be lost here. There's a lot on the line. But I don't want to be all doom and gloom because I think that it is one of those things that where when you when you have when you have it in your blood, it is it's tough to to lose a, a love of this industry, you know, similar to uh, brothers in arms. And, you know, I think I think, you know, in the healthcare industry, doctors and nurses who have worked, you know, these incredibly long shifts together, um, you know, folks that have shared a, a really hot, uncomfortable, cramped space while they're they're cooking yeah. delicious food. Um you know, there, there's a camaraderie there that isn't easily replicated underneath fluorescent lights or, or within cubicles. Um, and so I think that there, there are always lifers out there and true believers. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I hope that the innovative things that are out there in the market, they can be replicated on, on a smaller scale and be co-opted by these mom and pop operations. And I think that there are a lot of lessons to be synthesized and learned and incorporated in, into these operations over the coming months. And yes, you know, sadly, some places are going to close, but I, I think that these kinds of disruptions, you know, it's, it, it's sort of the, the forest fire that, that allows the, the seeds to germinate. And so hopefully mm. there is, um, there's new growth on the other side of this. And indeed, I'm not here to make you blush or even to put you into play, but I'm on your LinkedIn page. And I want to say, uh, to everyone who's listening, Kevin Wilson, while you were at VCU between years 2001 and 2005 for your bachelor's, I'm seeing here Sticky Rice, the famous sushi karaoke uh, tater tots and PBR place. You could say 
I increased sushi bar sales by 40% over three years while maintaining a cost of goods below 25%, maintained a high retention rate while responsible for staff hiring, scheduling, and training. I'm scrolling up. Next, you were co-owner at the cellar door. You created a Peruvian-inspired restaurant concept from the ground up. You were a small business representative at Virginia Organizing, president of the Fan Business Area Alliance. I go up. You were owner at Sticky to Go-Go, the offshoot of Sticky Rice, where you managed the daily operations. Yes, it was a, a difficult lesson to learn as, as the country and economy dipped into financial crisis, uh, but you were there between 2006 and 2017, and you parlayed all that into becoming director of community engagement as, at an Inc. 5000 payroll and HR company. And I'm only illustrating that to show how important the restaurant industry, and it's why I booked you, was to who you are, why you know your outreach resounds out there with small and medium businesses, why you can immediately understand work from home and retention and these various other otherwise one-time issues that are plaguing all manner of business owners during the pandemic. Well, you're you're incredibly kind, Robin. Um, and and you failed. I am blushing here, but uh, <laughs> no, I I I think that um, sort of what you're hinting at and something that I have I have seen. Um, you know, across industries is that, you know, when you, when you find people who have sweated it out in kitchens or they've worked till 4am, you know, slinging drinks, you have some incredibly creative, hardworking people and organizations across the entirety of the economy are lucky to have folks who bring both dedication and compassion that, that comes from all aspects of these, these jobs in the industry. If I had my druthers, you know, rather than having, you know, a, a year of, of conscription or, or perhaps community service, I think everybody should work six months to a year in, mm. in the food service industry. And we'd have a, a much more civil society uh, writ large. Kevin Wilson, Director of Community Engagement at Dominion Payroll. You should know you are always welcome to come back on this show. You're too kind. This has been, uh, been great, Robin, and always good to talk to you. Full disclosure, special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcasts to NPR One, a fine app, uh, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com, and Spotify. I love the user interface. You can catch us on Terrestrial Radio at KPPQ in Ventura, California. That's KPPQLP 104.1 FM. We are on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and much of D.C. We are on WPVM down in gorgeous hill country in Asheville, North Carolina, and holler if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. 